0: What is up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock and you're listening to Pot of Fame, the podcast where we break down the crews of former athletes and decide whether or not you should get a call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're doing a first of, I'm hoping, many of a new, it's not a segment, but it might be, let's call it a series of podcasts where I talk to the author of a upcoming sports book. Uh, I I love reading. It's it's one of my favorite things to do outside of, you know, work. <laughs> and um, I read a lot, and I read a bunch of sports books. I love uh historical bios. I if you follow me on Twitter. You've probably learned recently. I just finished this like seven hundred page book on Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, biography. There, so I love to read. Um, and and I want to kind of bring that to the podcast. And I've had. I've had authors on before that have promoted their books. You know, Jeff Perlman's been on here promoting some of his books. I've had other authors as well, Uh, but we kind of talk about the book and then we talk about a specific player uh, and then do you know the normal podcast. And I kind of want to focus more on just books that authors are writing about sports. This will be strictly about sports. No Cornelius Vanderbilt reviews here. So sports books. Talk to the author. Talk about the topic, and then also, of course. I'll find a way to talk about Hall of Fame cancies throughout the conversation as well. There's always room for that. So today is the first of hopefully a series uh, uh, called, I'm calling it, uh, Pot of Fame Book Club. Nothing crazy there. And again, from time to time now in the future, I will do this where I'll bring an author on and again, talk to him about the book. So today, the first of the series will be uh, on a new book coming out September 12th. Uh, about the new york giants the 1986 giants it's called once a giant a story of victory tragedy and life after football it's by uh nfl writer uh, pro football hall of fame voter uh gary myers gary's come on the podcast before to talk about former players but today we talked about again his new book coming out and it, it was really fun and i definitely think i want to continue doing this moving forward unless i get you know, feedback from you all that you hate this, <laughs> which I hope is not the case. But you know, Gary and I again talked about the book in detail, which not just talks about the nineteen eighty six Giants, but more about the players and what they've dealt with since that season. So, uh, the in- injuries, um, things, topics like depression, um, how how they deal with you know everything they're going through in life now, and and the bond they've all formed over time, where. They all bond over these different, you know, issues, trials that they're facing in life and, and you know how they're how they're working to overcome it. So it's a really interesting book. Um, can't wait for it to come out in September. But yeah, Gary and I talk about the book, uh, the players all throughout the podcast. We talk about Lawrence Taylor, of course. Is he the best defensive player of all the time? We talk about Bill Barcells, Bill Belichick. We talk about other players like Phil Sims, you know, should he be in the Hall of Fame? Um, Carl Banks so it's a really great podcast we cover a lot of different topics uh, and again not something we're going to do every week or every month but from time to time we are going to roll out this pot of fame book club type podcast and uh, again hopefully you enjoy it and in this book I did not read yet it doesn't come out till September I think in the future maybe I'll read read the book first then bring on the author review it there But this is the first of the series. We're trying to figure it out. So I I think this worked well. So I think kind of promoting it before it comes out is fine too. Uh, But that is what today's podcast is. If you only like our regular segmented version of this podcast, next Monday we will have a regular episode for you. Uh, But again, had a lot of fun with this. Gary's uh, a great guest to have on. He's been covering the NFL for a long time. So we cover, again, his book and a lot of other different NFL topics. And with the NFL season right around the corner, there's no better time than the present to talk NFL. So that's today's podcast. Without further ado, let's bring on Gary. All right, so I'd like to welcome back to the podcast longtime NFL writer, pro football Hall of Fame voter and author of several books on football, including his latest book, once a Giant, A Story of Victory, Tragedy, and Life After Football, which comes out September 12th of this year. Gary Myers. Gary, welcome back. How have you been? I'm great, Jim. How are
1: you doing? Thanks for having me on.
0: I'm doing great. It's it's great to have you back on. So, Gary, uh, we were talking a little bit before we record here. The last time you we were on this podcast was way back in 2020. It was peak COVID. Uh, we talked about the Hall of Fame can of Drew Pearson and Drew got into the Hall of Fame the following year. Um, is, is that because you came on the podcast and talked about him? Probably. Now oh, just yeah, I think
1: all the other voters <laughs> told me that they listened to the podcast and became
0: I, I, I mean that had to be what happened. It was a year later, but he got in, which is great. Yeah, um yeah. and and, t- and today we're we're not talking about uh anyone's Hall of Fame candidacy per se, except, you know, I'll probably throw some some giant players at you later and we'll talk about them. But we're talking about your new book coming out and we're talking about the 86 Giants. So your new book, again, coming out in September, uh, it's about those 86 giants, but it's it's not as much about the season itself. I'm sure you talk about it, but it's more about what happens after. Can you tell us a little more about kind of a high-level overview of what your book covers and, and also, you know, what led you to kind of write this book? Why did you feel like this story, these stories had to be told?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great way to get this started, uh, Jim. I've, I've th- felt like the last 10 years or so that the most important issue facing the players of today and, and yesterday and certainly the players of tomorrow is what is their life going to be like when they're in their 50s and 60s? And that's really come more into the forefront because of CTE. But the issues these play- players are facing goes well beyond CTE. There's mental health issues, financial issues, physical issues. So I wanted to do this book and then I was just thinking, okay, how am I gonna present it? And in, instead of going around and just talking to players on different teams and, and you know, finding some big names, some lesser names from all around the country, I decided to, you know, I live in New York. I've always wanted to write a book that was about a New York team. And the 86 Giants are the most beloved by far of the Giants four Super Bowl championship teams. And these players from 1986 are in the age group that I wanted to write about um, being the mid to late 50s, mid to late 60s. So it was with that in mind that, you know, I just set out to get a hold of as many players, you know, the big names, some of the lesser names and find out what their life is like now. And um, and I didn't want, and I knew a lot of the stories were gonna be heartbreaking type stories. And I didn't want to make the book completely a downer where I'm just discussing players having hip replacements and uh, having financial problems or drug problems. So the way I drew the 86 team into it was talking about how they really became a brotherhood and and how winning that championship solidified a bond that was already pretty strong. But when you win something together, as Parcells always says, it becomes a blood kinship and it, it, it never ends and a lot of these guys still live in the metropolitan New York area so what I found fascinating is really how they've stayed in touch and if a player is in need in any way they all rally around them which I find to be very unusual um and it was because in those pre-free agency days teams stayed intact so they were building to that moment in 84 and 85 and And then one, you know, got to the top of the mountain in 86, which really created this lifelong bond that and that's the heartwarming part of the story is how even though there's players who are really in need, you have their teammates who still consider themselves teammates that do anything they can to try to help these players that need it.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, Gary, you sent me over. I haven't got my hands in the book yet. I can't wait to read it when it comes up. But you sent me over a few tidbits um, that were included in the book. And and something that jumped out to me uh, that you kind of mentioned is uh, it was about Bill Parcells. And and you're saying, you know, everyone stayed in contact. You know, they help each other out. And there's something in what you sent over where um, Parcells told you that he has loaned over four million dollars two former players um, without, you know, thinking he's going to be repaid. So not really alone, just more giving for Mill, saying, you know, he feels the need to help the players right. that sacrifice for him. Um, one, can you tell me a little more about that? And two, I have not in my, in my time doing this, ever heard of a coach doing that generous, I guess, of um, – <laughs> I don't want to say donation, but just giving money to former players, helping out former players in this way. Have, have you heard of a coach no. elsewhere doing something like this? That really jumped out to me.
1: Yeah, I, I've never heard of that anywhere. Now, you know, certain organizations, um, you know, have, you know, I mean, they all have alumni groups. And if a guy's in trouble, maybe the team will try to give him a job or I've never really heard of a team loaning money, but this is, Even beyond that, this is just a coach uh, who was hard driving and had a love-hate relationship with many of these guys. But in the years that have gone on since, they all realized what he was trying to do was push them to their limits so they can win a championship together. And and Bill, who is now, I think he's coming up on his 82nd birthday uh, next month in August, um, he understood how these players sacrificed for him and with their success together meant to his career uh, in being able to parlay that into other coaching opportunities when he, and, you know, we all know Bill kind of was a job hopper, but every time he left the place, he left it in better shape than when he showed up and the next job always paid him more money. And and now he's reached a point in his life where he has all the money he needs. He's set aside money for what he says you know for whatever time he has left he's got three daughters and he's given them as much as he can under without causing you know serious tax implications he has grandkids he's taken care of that so the money he has left now he feels he wants to do whatever he can to help players who helped him so much and it's with no expectation like you mentioned before of ever being you know, repaid. And it's not like he's sending a collection agency after these guys who owe him, you know, a considerable amount of money. He told me one story about a a former player with the Patriots that was one of his favorite guys who wrote him a letter. And this is relatively recent that he was $60,000 short and his pension wasn't kicking in uh, until the next year. And could Bill loan him the money? And he promised he would pay him back. And, And Bill wrote him the check. And um, I don't think he was ever going to ask him to repay him. If the guy winds up repaying him, obviously, he'll appreciate that. But it wasn't with the thought, "Okay, I'm going to lend him $60,000. And a year from August, I'm going to get a check for $60,000 because his pension will have kicked in. Uh, Whether he has or not, I'm not sure yet. I I was actually going to ask Bill that at some point. Uh, It would have been too late to get that in the book. Uh, because it would have been, you know, eight or nine months after he loaned the money, so there wouldn't have been enough time to meet my deadline to have the answer to that. But uh, Bill didn't really care; he just didn't care, and uh, and and he was trying to downplay because that's the way Bill is, and he he wouldn't tell me he didn't tell me the story, so I would write about it and make him look like a hero. And he goes, "Oh, I'm sure there's other coaches who have done that." I go, "No, Bill, I, I don't think so."
0: yeah again uh, i was reading through some of them that really jumped out to me and Mm -hmm. you know it's great to see and and that's really neat that purcell because again when i think of bill parcells i kind of think of a hard ass and i think of someone i I don't think of someone that's being that generous um and 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 again maybe that those two things aren't always the same but that really does shine a light on him that i otherwise wouldn't know And, and gary along with the interviews right like for this you you interview parcells of course bill belichick who i feel like rarely sits down for interviews and of course some of the hall of famers on that team lawrence taylor harry carson um quarterback phil sims out of all the interviews you did which one really stood out to you which one did you feel like you just enjoyed the most uh kind of preparing for this book
1: well somebody you didn't mention yet and and that was mark bavaro mm I went to his house in Massachusetts. And, you know, if you remember Mark from his playing days, he was very quiet, um, rarely gave in-depth interviews on any subject. That's just the way he was wired at the time. I tease him now because he's a great talker. I said, do you know how much money you could have made? You know, he's a nice looking guy. He was a cult figure among giant fans. Uh, a, a key guy on two Super Bowl teams. I said, if you just open yourself up, you could have been in, in many commercials and, and made a bunch of money during that time. He goes, it just wasn't him at that period of time. But the reason I enjoyed his interview so much is not only did he have a very compelling story. And I use that word a lot compelling about a lot of this stuff in this book, but he had a terrible battle with long-term COVID and um, had suicidal thoughts, um, fell a couple of times in his house. I have a picture in the book that is just gonna shock people. The second time he fell, he fell on his bathroom floor in the middle of the night and really uh, fell flat on his face. And the picture of him in the book with the black and blue marks all over, his face is worse than any injury he ever suffered, uh, taking hits from linebackers and safeties. And uh, again, the book is really gonna shock people. It's that kind of, I mean, the, the picture rather is really gonna shock people. Um, but Mark was very, very forthcoming uh, taking me through his battle with COVID and how his wife really believes it, it, it attacked his, the virus attacked his brain because he had suffered so many concussions during the course of his career. And that made his brain more vulnerable to the virus. And um, and led him to being paranoid, um, anxiety ridden. How he sat in his living room chair one night, and his intellectual side was saying, "You'll fight through this. You have so many things going for you in your life," and his emotional side saying, "What's the purpose of living if I'm going to be like this the rest of my life?" And he, you know, he was teammates with Dave Dewerson. Both at Notre Dame and with the Giants. And Dave Duberson had what was later diagnosed as CTE and, and he killed himself. Andre Waters, they were teammates towards the end of Mark's career in Philadelphia. And Andre also committed suicide and was diagnosed with CTE because it can't be diagnosed officially until a uh, until player, a person passes away. But Mark was telling me, and it was just, I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking to listen to Jim, just him saying, I could never understand how these guys who otherwise had a lot going for themselves, how can they reach the depth of despair that they would take their own lives? And then I'm sitting in my living room one night saying, I understand. And I'm thinking maybe I would be better off like that too, but he was strong enough in so many ways to fight that off. And, uh, get himself back on track, finally finding a doctor that prescribed the right medication. He had the medication lined up on the island in his kitchen. There must have been 20 bottles. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, these are the ones that are working. Let me, And he opened his closet in the kitchen. He goes, these are the ones that didn't work. And he had probably 40 of them in there. So it was really a struggle for him to find um, the combination of meds that would help him get back on track and it it took it took over a year for him to finally feel like himself again
0: well I'm, I'm glad he it sounds like he's starting to feel like himself again but that's super scary and I think I think the scary part about a lot of what you talk about in this book probably is you know you're you're focusing in on just one team from you know one year and how the rest of their lives went but I would imagine, Garrett. Right, if you looked into any team during you know this period of time, and honestly, during most decades of at least the early NFL, these are all similar stories. It, it's not just this team. It would be any team you really looked into. Um, in the course of researching for this book, did you focus on any other players throughout the '80s on other teams as well, or was it specifically just the Giants players? And kind of you know again. What happened following this season up to today?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was more in in the context of the story I just told you about Duerson and, and sure. Waters, that I mentioned players and other teams, but I didn't really go in depth on those. It was all more in the framework of the 86 giants, but you bring up a really interesting point and I'm glad that you did. I, I think this book has national appeal, yeah. not just appeal to giant fans. And the reason I feel that way is kind of what you alluded to. It's not just the 86 Giants that in 2023 are suffering from their careers in football. It's all players or a a representative number of players that probably equals the 86 Giants from, say, the 86 Cowboys or the 86 Seahawks or the 86 Lions. It's not unique to the 86 Giants. I just chose to write about them because it allowed me to focus better. Um, and because these players are having interactions, I, I just thought it, it kind of all tied together. But anybody who's into football and is into learning about what their lives, what these players' lives are like when they get to the mid-50s to the mid-60s, which is the age group of players who played in the 86. They'll be interested in this book, even though it's not about their hometown team, because the stories are very, very similar for every team. Yeah,
0: no, I, I do think it's national book because, yeah, it's you look at it through this lens. But any fan, any fan of a team that keeps track of their former players and is in the know, they, they know that they have former players. They're going to suffer from the same thing here. So they could definitely see it in their own, you know, in their own team, as you are telling through this lens of just this giants team. But I Gary, I do want to talk about some of the players on this giants team. Cause again, one of the, I think a lot of people say one of the better teams probably of all time, Uh, they go 14 and two that year. They not only have Bill Parcells, a hall of fame coach, but they got Bill Belichick as the defensive coordinator on this team. And of course the crown jewel in terms of players is, is Lawrence Taylor LT, right? Uh, Last defensive player to win the MVP trophy, three-time defensive player of the year award, 10-time All-Pro first-teamer. Uh, Gary, I-, I was talking to a few people about this the other week, and I was like, well, I'm talking to Gary soon. This is kind of perfect. You know, we were discussing, it. you know, is LT the best linebacker uh, uh, of all time? And then there was talk, is LT the best defensive player in NFL history? Gary, you've covered the game for a, a very long time. You've seen a lot of defensive players come and go. If it's coming discussing, you know, Lawrence Taylor, best linebacker of all time, or even Lawrence Taylor, best defensive player of all time, I guess, what's your stance there? Do you think he's the clear, he has the clear crown? Do you think there's other people? Of course there's other people in competition, but I guess just wanted your opinion
1: here, LT, where is he rank all time for you? Well, I, I would say to anybody, if, it, if Lawrence Taylor is not the best defensive player in NFL history, Tell me who is. I mean, who are you talking about? Reggie White. Reggie White, great player. Maybe second or third best. Um, Ronnie Lott, for the position he played, was an impact player, cornerback and safety, a tremendous player. But was he better than Lawrence Taylor? No. Um, Dick Butkus, you know, players from that era? No, Lawrence Taylor was a physical freak that impacted the game on every play. And I, I just don't even think it's a conversation, not a conversation. no, you can you can make a case that he's the best player in NFL history, regardless of position. Mm. You know, obviously, you get arguments about Brady and Jim Brown and Jerry Rice. um I you know, if I really wanted to get into a debate, uh, I can make a case that Lawrence is the best player in NFL history. But I would probably go with Brady because, just the seven championships. And then I would have no problem putting Lawrence second ahead of Jim Brown and, and Jerry Rice. Cause those would be my top four. Um, yeah, I mean, he was just, he changed the game. He changed the way the game was played uh, where outside linebackers became the most dangerous pass rushers on any team. Um, Bill Walsh tried to block Lawrence with a, with a tackle at first, then he tried to tackle on a running back, and that wasn't working. So then he would slide the guard out and have a tackle and a guard. So a combination of 580 pounds trying to block a guy who was 245 pounds. And you know, that didn't work. I mean, he was just tremendous. And you know, the issue really is: okay, if if Lawrence was this great having a horrible cocaine addiction how great could he have been if he didn't? And that's a subject that I actually addressed in the book with mm-hmm. him. And um, he admitted that, you know, he's, he's thought about that, but it's come to the conclusion that he is who he is because of who he was. And um, that's all part of his story. And I mean, I have to, I said, what would what would you uh, 62, or uh, actually 60, four now. Uh, I said, what was 64-year-old Lawrence Taylor say to 25-year-old Lawrence Taylor about drugs? He'd say, i tell him not to do it. And I would tell anybody there not to do it. But he goes, I'm not going to tell you that I regret the path that I took because it made me who I am. And uh, he goes, you know, if he went into a restaurant today and was just Lawrence Taylor, you know, comma, greatest defensive player in NFL history, people would go, oh, look over there, there's Lawrence Taylor. But, you know, but, because he's Lawrence Taylor greatest defensive player and boy, what a screw up he was and how he got suspended for drug use and, and this and that he says, you know, people jump out of their seats when they see him. And that's a part of his life that he's willing to accept and, and doesn't regret. But I mean, that's a long winded way of saying, yeah, I think he's the best defensive (laughs) player in NFL history.
0: Yeah, and again, if you're saying he's not maybe just that, but also maybe one you could make an argument for the best, I think that at least covers he's the best linebacker of all time. And then, yeah, defensive, you know, I, I in competition, I would think players like you name Reggie White, Deacon Jones, Ronnie Lott, players like that, but sheer impact. Um, you know, I, I feel like anyone I've ever talked to that's covered again, I. Gary, I, I, was, I was barely alive by the time uh, LT retired. So I never got to see him really okay. live or anything yeah. like that. But I talked to enough people and it seems to be a consensus and no one really makes an argument against it. So just wanted to clarify that up with you yeah, as well.
1: You know <laughs> I was going to say this, just think about this. I think we all agree that Belichick is probably the best defensive coach ever. Yeah. As well as now we think of him as the best head coach ever, but certainly the best defensive coach ever. So you had the best defensive coach you have the best defensive player, both in their prime years. Belichick as a defensive coordinator by 1986 was, you know, reaching genius category. Lawrence had an incredible season in '86. After his in the off season that year was his first time in a rehab center, so yep. he basically walked out of the rehab center, won MVP and the Super Bowl within months of each other. Parcells, who in my mind is easily a top five all-time head coach. Um, and until Belichick got on this great second run where he's won th- three more Super Bowls after winning the first three relatively early in the 2000s and the next three in the 2010s. But I'd say after the first three, you can have an argument, is it Belichick or is the better head coach? Now I don't think it's an argument anymore just because Belichick has stood the test of time Um, And he'll get her turned around in New England. There's no doubt in my mind. I don't know if it'll be this year, but um, I'm not going to even say he's going to win another Super Bowl, but he'll have that team really competitive again. Um, But when you think of just the the brain power that was on that team and then the, the physical abilities of guys like Lawrence and Carl Banks and Harry Carson and Leonard Marshall, who got completely overlooked, but was a great pass rusher. I mean, there there was some amazing talent on that team and great personalities. And there's still great personalities, which is another reason this book was very attractive for me to write is I knew they were all great talkers and they don't make guys like this anymore where you can have a relationship with them in the locker room that can carry over 35 years and you can talk to them as if you talked to them yesterday and pick up where you left off. Nowadays, you get... 45 minutes in the locker room, a few days a week. The players are never there during the open locker room period, so it's impossible to get to know them. The PR department cuts off interviews in the middle, even though the player is willing to stand there and talk some more. So personal relationship with players, which was how you got insight and were able to write really good stories or good news stories because they would give you stuff. Now it's just the whole locker room set up as not conducive to writers getting to know players, um, which became, made it less and less enjoyable for me, you know, towards the end of my time at the Daily News, which was over in 2018, by that point, it's like, I almost dreaded going in the locker room because you'd stand around around and talk to the other media or the backup left guard because there was nobody else in the locker room to talk to. So a, a team like the 86 Giants, and and players on that team they just don't make them like that anymore
0: yeah and gary talking about that 86 team specifically so again you know parcells belichick you know lt harry carson all hall of fame guys um but those are the four that are gonna you know belichick hall of fame <clears throat> all four of them hall of famers i look at some of the other players from that team and again this is a hall of fame podcast so i gotta venture into this just for sure. a second you know we got Phil Sims, he, he was a S- Super Bowl MVP uh, uh, of that year. Um, Leonard Marshall, you brought up earlier, a very underlooked defensive player. Linebacker Carl Banks was recently um, named a semifinalist by the Veterans Committee for this next upcoming class. And then also George Martin. I feel like people forget about him. Yeah. And then not on the 86 team, but later on, Pepper Johnson was also on that team. He just wasn't really a starter yet, but later on he had a really good career as well. Um I mean, Gary, do you think the Hall of Fame has it right? Like, is there only really four Hall of Famers from that team? The the two coaches, LT and Harry Carson, or is there anyone else that deserves? And again, some of them are getting second looks right now. But if is there any other player in that team that you think deserves to be in Ken? Or is the four they have, you think they kind of got it right? These other players are great players, just maybe not Ken
1: type of players. Well, Jim, I mean, I'll start off by saying if Phil Simms hadn't gotten hurt in 1990 with a handful of games to go and the Giants still went on to win the Super Bowl, which you can't assume. Even Phil says you can't assume because Hostel mobility in the championship game against San Francisco probably won the game. And we don't know if Phil would have been able to do that. Uh, But if he had won that second Super Bowl, he'd be in the Hall of Fame already Mm because he already has. Percentage-wise, the best game in in Super Bowl history for quarterback, 22 out of 25, 88%. You know, nobody's matched that. Um, Carl Banks, as you mentioned, a semifinalist, as a senior candidate, um, I'm on that committee. And we're in the process of cutting it from 31. It's usually 25, but there were ties. So it's 31, and we're cutting it down to 12, and that'll be announced, I believe, July 20, late late in, the, in July. Um, by the time this is on, we might already know if, if Carl is among the final 12. Um, I, I've been pushing for him this year. The Giants were very helpful. They put together a video uh, and an information sheet, and I wrote a letter, and I think that had a lot, to, that package had a lot to do with getting Carl into the mix as a semifinalist, there's no doubt in my mind that he's a Hall of Famer. And there's also no doubt that the reason he isn't is because he was overshadowed by Lawrence and then Harry. Harry wasn't there for the second Super Bowl. Mm. Carl would have been the MVP of the 86 Super Bowl had Phil been 22 of 30 instead of 22 of 25. Because Carl was dominant in that game he even with phil doing what he did carl i think was the best player on the field a lot of phil i mean 2020 25 was tremendous and and phil did hit his share of downfield passes but a lot of the stuff was you know uh curl routes or slants that phil could probably hit in his sleep and so many of the receivers were so wide open carl i, I thought was really instrumental in, in holding, you know, which was a high-powered Denver offense to, to only 20 points. And one of those touchdowns, I think, was in garbage time. So I, I think Carl does deserve to get in. And, and if it's not this year, I'm hopeful it, it's next year. So those, those are the two guys, Phil and Carl, that I would say were kind of on the doorstep and or uh, extenuating circumstances, Phil getting hurt. Carl playing with the greatest defensive player in NFL history. But I think there is room for three linebackers from the Giants, from that 86 team in the Hall of Fame. And, and we'll find out, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, if not this year, that, that that Carl is in there as well. And and Belichick will be in five years after he retires. We of course.
0: Him. I am I was saying he's a Hall of Famer already because he kind of – I mean, he is. Like, yeah, we I mean, know he is. It's just – Just got to retire. That's all. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and he would, you know, if the old rules were in place, he would get in as soon as he retires. But mm-hmm. uh, when Joe Gibbs came back after getting in the Hall of Fame, he came back 10 years later. And Parcells didn't get in in the early 2000s because they were afraid they were going to put him in after he left the Jets. And then he'd come back and coach. And they were right because he came yep. back and coached the Cowboys. And that's embarrassing for the Hall of Fame to have somebody in there who's still active. I mean, it happens with owners. But it's different for a coach and a player. Sure. So they adopted the rule you had to be out five years. So uh, each year that Belichick coaches, pushes it back in another year uh, in that five-year window. So um, who knows how much longer he's going to coach. I think he's just waiting to get the team straightened out and also pass Shula to be the all-time winningest coach in NFL history.
0: Yeah. And he's getting close there. No. So Gary, the, the last question I want to ask you here. Sure. um, And this might be tough, but you know, you look at eighties football uh, it's, it's dominated, right? It's it's the 49ers, Bill Walsh um, had some great teams there. The, The Raiders won a few Super Bowls. Of course the giants won in 86, my Chicago bears had the 85 bears probably Honestly, one of the most famous teams in Chicago sports history at rivals any of the Jordan teams probably at times over overshadows the Jordan teams. That's how big the 85 Bears were here. Um, if I were to ask you, right, who, who was just for a single year, what was the best football team in the 80s? Just one year, one team. Who would you say it was? I mean, were the 86 Giants the best year, best team of the 80s? I mean, I'm partial. I'm gonna say it's the 85 Bears, of course. What would you say though? Because there was a lot of great teams in those 80s.
1: Yeah, and Washington won twice. In the Washington, 80s. yeah. Well, Joe
0: Gibbs, that's what kind of brought this. I was like, Joe Gibbs won too. So, those, so the, are
1: both, those are both those were both strike year teams. And I give them an asterisk on that. Oh, uh, Washington
0: fans and... don't want to hear that. No, I know, but I
1: <laughs> I think it's true. So <laughs> I'm going to answer your question this way. And I, okay. I this question. I'm going to give you my three finalists for that. I like title, that. And then I'm going to tell you who I would pick. Okay. And I go right in a row, 84 Niners, which I thought was the best of the 49er teams that ever okay. won the championship. And the interesting thing about that it's a year before Jerry Rice even got there. Oh, interesting. Okay. Rice was a rookie in 85, uh, 84 Roger Craig was a dominant player. John, i think john taylor i'd have to actually look that up dwight clark was still there i don't remember who the second receiver was um but that was i thought an explosive team with probably the niners best defense out of their five championship teams then the second team would be the 85 bears and then the third team the 86 giants i think those three teams are as good as any of the teams in the super bowl era and I know the game has changed now, and different rules. And Lawrence Taylor probably get kicked out of half the games for the hits he put on quarterbacks that would now be illegal. But as far as picking uh, the best of that group, I would I would go with you. The '85 Bears were the only team I ever saw that, and maybe a little bit the '2000 Ravens, mm. where offenses were afraid. Yep, I I think I-, I there was a game, and I was in Dallas during the '80s. That's I worked the morning news Dallas morning news covering the Cowboys there was a game in 86 that the Bears beat the, the Bears beat the Cowboys 44 nothing and um, Danny White started the game they knocked him out Gary Ho- Hogaboom came in they knocked him out and Danny White had to come back in I thought the Cowboys offense just didn't want to be on the field that game because between Richard Dent and Dan Hampton and and the fridge and and Wilbur Marshall and um, Mike Singletary and Otis Wilson and Duerson and all those guys. The, the Cowboys had no desire. They were making business decisions all over the field, not subjecting themselves to getting hit and just going down from what I remember. Um, I thought that the, the 2000 Ravens had some of that in them, but I still take the 85 bears over them as a complete team because the 2000 ravers had trent Dilfer as the quarterback and although mcmahon wasn't a great player and he was hurt a bunch that year and um but i'm drawing a blank on the backup quarterback for the bears that year that did really um
0: great. i it was oh my gosh it's not tom zach that was a couple of years later it's um he was even in oh fuller
1: steve fuller, fuller. right right yep um I thought that the you know the, the, the Bears with um with the offense that they had were still capable, much more capable than say the Ravens offense. So it's a complete team. They had the dominant defense and a good enough offense um, that they to me were the best team of the age. I, I think you can pick out clearly teams of the decade. Sixties was the Packers, 70 was the Steelers, 80 was the Niners, as a complete you know a team of the decade even though the bears had the single best team um the 90s um who are we picking in the 90s what, the cowboys uh, the cow Cal- of course the cowboys right yeah uh, I, I guess that it slips my mind because it's been such a long time since the cowboys have won anything yeah the hey, cowboys, right. 90s the patriots of the 2000s and then again the 2010s because they won three in each decade mm-hmm. And obviously, this decade of for grabs, it looks like, you know, Kansas City has a a pretty good head start on that. Um, Yeah, but the the Cowboys teams, you know, if there wasn't free agency and Jimmy Johnson didn't have that, you know, divorce with, with Jerry Jones, I think that Cowboy team was capable of winning like five or six in a row. As it is, they won three out of four. The one they lost was Barry Switzer's first year, and uh, they fell behind like twenty-one nothing or something in the championship game in San Francisco, and came back to make it a game where they had a they had a legitimate chance to win at the end. But if it was just Jimmy, um, I, I think they would have won that year, and Switzer won the next year. So obviously Jimmy would have won the next year, and then. But, but the problem was they were the first dominant team to deal with free agency because all the other teams was pre-free agency. And, you know, some of their really good players and Alvin Harper was a great example where he was a number two receiver on that team to Michael Irvin, but he went and got number one money from Tampa in the pre-free agency days. He wouldn't have had that opportunity. So you keep those teams intact. And I think if that team had stayed whole with the coaching staff and the players, they might be remembered as the greatest team ever because they had more Super Bowls in them. It's just, you know, Barry Switzer was kind of a knucklehead and they won in spite of him.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I will take the 1985 Bears as, as your answer. Again, as a Bears guy, I, I love that, of course. And please keep Steve McMichael at top of mind for that Veterans oh, Committee right. vote because he's he's That's one of the right. guys we, we've been a big fan of. And, I just,
1: and, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, No, you're good my ballot and um once they got it down to 31 and on my list of 12 and again it might be a moot point by the time you air this I don't know but um McMichael made my cut to 12 and I voted for him last year too um so I'm hoping to me you know I I was really advocating for Joe Klecko Mm. um to get in in the class of 23 and and he did, and I was really happy about that. And I'm hoping Everson Walls gets in. But McMichael and, and like Carl Banks, those guys are really high on my list uh, to get in um, as seniors. Yeah, well,
0: he's also someone, of course, battling a sickness right now. And right. we'd love to see him get in. But Gary, um, appreciate you coming on to talk about the book again. Excited to, to get into it once it comes out. Um, anything else you want to plug here at the end before we get you out of here?
1: No, I just want to tell um, everybody who's uh, t- listening to this podcast that uh, if you're interested in it, it's Once a Giant and it comes out September 12th, but it's available now to pre-order on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Hachette, which is my publisher. It's on their website as well. So as authors, we always appreciate the pre-orders uh, to get us off to a, a fast start in, in selling. And uh, I, I guarantee you, anybody who's just into football or just into, you know, the human interest aspect of football is really going to enjoy this book because I, I think I really do humanize these guys that fans tend to look at and idolize, all look at you know, the notoriety they have and then the money they make without taking into consideration that, you know, they're fa- facing a lot of real life problems that uh, the average person doesn't have to deal with because they spent their their you know their, their prime earning years in a not it's not even a a contact sport jim it's a collision sport yeah it's a high speed auto collisions almost on every play and I, I came away i always had great admiration for these guys being able to uh walk after games but i even have greater admiration for them now knowing um how much they've struggled to do everyday things in life because of all those collisions uh, that they faced every Sunday. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really brutal. And I mean, obviously there's a ton of positives to playing football, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the money, uh, the, what it could lead to in a post-career uh, uh, opportunities, but physically there's no way they can get that stuff back. And a lot of them are really struggling.
0: Yeah, no. Um, I know. Again, I look forward to reading it. Everyone listening today, if you have any interest at all, and again, if you're listening, I figure you got at least a bit. Go order pre-order uh, Gary's book. Again, it will get you ready for football season. Get you excited for football season because Gary, is, it's ju- we're recording this on July 14th, but it's it's upon us. Football season is here, um, and it's going to be the fall before we know it, which again is one of the most exciting times of the year for me personally. So, Gary. Again, thank you for coming on, talking about the book, and um, we'll, we'll be looking forward to reading it.
1: Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to come on you, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to inform the people or your listeners about this book. So, thank you very much. Of course. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too.
0: All right. I want to thank Gary again for coming on the podcast to talk about his upcoming book and just the NFL in general. This is our first episode of Pot of Fame Book Club. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you did enjoy it. You know, DM me on Twitter, uh, email us at Pot of Fame. Let us know. Because if no one likes this, I don't want to do it. But again, I love books. I love sports. This all makes sense. And it won't be all the time. It'll be every once in a while when I read a book I really like, um, when there's an upcoming book I'm really excited about, I'll bring the author on. We'll talk about the book, see if you're interested in buying it or not. I think this is a win win here. So that's all we have today. If you don't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Pot of Fame. Follow our Substack, Past, Present, Future. Uh, all you do, Google Pot of Fame, Substack, Jim Milock. Substack you're going to find it. Uh if you've done all of that, you've done your homework. I hope you have a great week. And we'll talk to you next Monday. Take care.